We want to finish up the Jesus section this morning. The last line in the Jesus section is he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then the paragraph below it is going to transition into we believe in the Holy Spirit. We've talked about God the Father, believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then the whole Jesus section follows and the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian statement. It's about a hundred words that describes what Christians universally believe. You may be thinking, which Christians? Yes, all of them. You can't be a Christian and not believe in God. (laughs) Is that fairly, I mean, you can be something else and not believe in God, but you can't be a follower of Jesus Christ and not believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin, crucified, buried, and rose again the third day, and not believe in the Holy Spirit. These are the essential beliefs of Christianity in about a hundred words. I recommend that everybody memorize it. If you'd memorize it, you can almost... Uh, uh, witness to someone using this. You can explain Christianity using this. You'll help yourself be strengthened in your beliefs using the Apostles' Creed, which is why we teach through it. It's raised a lot of great issues for most of you in now the 12 weeks we've been studying together through the series, and hopefully it's solidified some things for you. Maybe it's made you correct some things in your own theology. Last few weeks went really slow with the opening of this sentence, that Jesus is going to return, he's going to come again. We've talked about eschatology, the theology of end times, and we talked about the different views of it from Revelation 20 last week. Hopefully you found yourself somewhere in one of those uh, schools of thought. Uh, As I said, for like three weeks now, there's a family discussion. It's not about fighting with other Christians or fighting internally. We would never divide the church because we love it too much. And there's a family discussion like you would love your family and sit over the dining room table and, 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 and fight about which football team's the best or, you know, what quarterback's the all-time great or whatever. It's just a family discussion. We love each other, but we can, we can have a, a robust debate if we want to because we are family at the end of the day and we love each other. So let's get right to it. Apostles' Creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We've talked about the Lord will come. Christians believe the Lord will return. I want to deal just briefly now with this last thought that when he returns, there is judgment. Something happens when the Lord returns and there is judgment. When he returns, he will judge the living and the dead. This, these sentences were taken from the teaching of the apostles who got their teaching directly from Jesus Christ. So the apostles were all convinced based on spending time with Jesus, that when he returned, there would be a day of judgment. Now, they'd read their Old Testament. They were, that was their Bible. There was no New Testament. And having read their Old Testament and studied it and heard the teachings of Christ, they began to put things together that when he returns, there would be a setting right of everything that is wrong. The injustices of this world would be made just in the return of Jesus Christ, And he would judge. Now you're thinking about, well, I'm righteous or somebody's unrighteous and how does that play out? Let me read you some language that you might find interesting. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 5 uses this language. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now in order for whatever this judgment is to take place, those who were dead have to have risen from the dead. Does that seem obvious? Okay, so it seems to me like a lot of things are happening at once at the return of Christ 
resurrection, judgment, renewal, that it may all be happening simultaneously. And I'll come back to that. But he's going to judge the living and the dead. And that's Peter writing this passage. So he got that from Jesus and from reading his Bible, the Old Testament. Paul was writing to Timothy and he was trying to encourage him, you know, preach the word, be instant in season. This is the preceding verse. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. And then he goes to charge him to be a good preacher, okay? So now Paul's telling Timothy... I, I, I charge you in the presence of the Lord and Him who, the, the Lord who will judge the living and the dead. It's a recurring language happening here. And they're getting this from the Scriptures. Brother Luke wrote the book of Acts. He's recording some of Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. Here's what he wrote, Acts 10, 39. Here's Peter speaking. We are witnesses of everything he did, Jesus did, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen 40 days. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed As the judge of the living and the dead, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now what I love about Peter's passage is Peter's preaching a sermon. He's telling them that at the return of the Lord, he will judge the living and the dead. And all those who received him will have the forgiveness of sins. Now it seems to me that Peter is answering one of my questions about is judgment always a bad thing, or are there two sides to judgment? Does it depend on which side of God you're on, how that works out? Could one side be reward and one side be punishment in the same judgment? We'll we'll see. Uh, There is some language in the Old Testament. There's a phrase, the day of the Lord. It's also in the New Testament, where they're quoting the Old Testament. Uh, If you want to do something interesting, look up the phrase, day of the Lord, and it's terrifying. Uh, day of the Lord language is like heavy, heavy Old Testament judgment. Like when God comes in the day of the Lord, lightning, fire, and thunder, and smoke, and, you know, I mean, cataclysmic stuff, okay? But it's fascinating reading to read about the day of the Lord. It occurs about 30 times in your Bible as judgment language. And I guess my big point this morning is just simply to say to you that we would all agree that the Bible is teaching that when the Lord returns, there will be judgment. But as I hinted, judgment can be two very different things depending on which side of the Lord's favor you're on. Uh, Judgment, if you went down to the courthouse in Tarrant County and said, I'm doing court today, there's going to be a judgment. Well, that could be the awarding of you millions of dollars in settlements uh, because you were some injustice was done to you. It could be your reward day. Does that make sense? If you did something wrong, it could be your punishment day. You may be going from the courtroom right to the jailhouse, uh, and, and it could be right to, to punishment phase. So it depends on what side of the law you're on, uh, depending on how the judge and the courtroom setting is, whether it's for your reward or whether the verdict goes for you or against you, if you would. Now, since we were already judged at Calvary for our sins, 
We who have received Jesus Christ know that the blood of Christ already washed us. So Peter starts hinting at this, for he will come to judge the living dead. But those who have received him, their sins are under the blood. And they, and he's already talking to you about acquittal and reward in your case. So judgment will be a reward to those who have received Christ. It will be punishment to those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe in final judgment. And I guess the issue with us here in Cornerstone this morning is we're not certain about this question, what does final judgment look like? I think this is the question for us. We all believe that God's going to set things right. He's going to punish the wicked. He's going to reward those who put their faith in Christ and, and, and resurrection and renewal we're going to talk about in just a moment. I guess the issue is what about those bad pictures that are in our head and how do we get them right? What does final judgment look like? So I'm going to take you back this morning, as I did last Sunday, back to Revelation chapter number 20. And I'm going to read from Revelation 20, uh, 20, uh, chapter 20 because Revelation 20 is not only about uh, eschatology, about the millennial reign and all of this and the binding of Satan that we talked about last week, but it's also about final judgment. Matter of fact, it has the best, best uh, most referred to uh, passage on final judgment, but it's also where you get the pictures in your head. Okay, so what I have to tell you is remember that Revelation is a specific genre of literature. <laughs> just keep, I'm like, I'm like a loop, aren't I, right now? And I'm just saying this and saying this and saying this, and hopefully it's sinking in now. What type of genre is it? It's apocalyptic literature, apocalypse. That's a very specific type of Jewish literature. Daniel is apocalypse literature. There's some in Zechariah, some in Isaiah. It's not uncommon. There are several books that are not in the biblical canon that are apocalyptic literature. It's a specific Jewish style of writing filled with numbers and symbols and images. They are not literal. Like poetry is not literal. They are, they are picture words. Words that make pictures. And they're not literal, but they stand for... Uh, you guys, give me a second. I'm not feeling good. I'm having a little issue today. The words make pictures in your mind. The pictures are not literal. Is that fair? Chapter 20 is where we get our teaching on the judgment. I saw a great white throne and the books were opened and the dead were judged that's where you get this language. I'm going to read. Chris, grab me a stool somewhere. It's a health issue, guys. Just bear with me a little bit. I get a little, I get a little lightheaded sometimes. You're good, Susan. Just let him grab a chair. I'm going to grab a bottle of water right here. Staff members know to rescue me. CBD gummies, <laughs> THC, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow, my allergy weren't bad enough, now you get to hear me smack my food, Revelation chapter 20, right, here we go. This is worse than the Lord's Supper, man. It's like... 
sorry. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And the earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place from them. This should be one of the most terrifying scenes you've ever read. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that's God. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them who are the them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. This sounds like a resurrection to me. And death and Hades, KJV, hell. Death and hell. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged. This is what we're looking for. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now here's my question for you. I know how you grew up because I grew up the same way. Is this language to be taken literally or not? And I know I'm going to get really touchy with a lot of us this morning who grew up the way I did. Is it literal or not? It's Revelation 20. And here's the problem. If you take this literal, then you have to take the thousand years literal. Then you have to take the chain that Satan's bound with literal. Then you have to take it literally that somewhere there is a big pit with a lid on it and a key that opens it. And if you could get Satan into that hole, you could lock it. Gosh, what's the song we sang in, in, in Sunday school as a kid? Mm, lock the lock and throw away the key for all those tricks he played on me. No way. Y'all don't know this song? Who knows what I'm talking about? Oh, Andy Baker. Grew up in a Baptist church. Went to Sunday school as a kid. The rest of you are probably not even saved. All right. So here, here's the issue. Do you take the language literally or not? No, no listen. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not a hell. Don't, don't go there with me yet. And I'm not saying there's not judgment. I'm saying emphatically there is judgment. I'm saying you can't draw the picture from Revelation 20 because it's apocalyptic literature and it's not meant to be taken literally. The same place we were last week, we're there again now. You say, well, it is literal. Okay, well, let's play that game. Let's just play one little game. Let's say the judgment, as you've just read it, is literal. It is estimated that there are about 100 billion humans who have ever lived on planet Earth. About eight of them are here right now. Okay? Everybody with me? It's been about 100 billion people live on planet Earth. When I stand up, I take up about two feet by two feet. That's four square feet. Some of you probably take up a little more than I do. Some a little less. So, you know, no discrimination there. That's nine million acres of land for all the 100 billion people to stand. 
That's an area of land that covers North Texas, about 120, 150 miles by 120 or 150 miles. That's a lot of standing people. Smith, Brenna, if Brenna's 120 miles back there, how long does it take her to get to the grandstands? Has anybody been to a 6A graduation? What does that run, about three hours? About three hours, two or three hours? How many people are in a graduating class, Alan? 800, 600? No, I'm talking 100 billion. I want you to just think math in your mind for a minute. It's 25,000 miles around the earth, roughly. That's 24-something. Some of you are going to email me. Just stop it, okay? It's 25,000 miles, roughly, around the earth. That would be a single file line of people circling the earth 1,500 times. 100 billion people would be. Jones, Bill, Jones, Bob, Jones, William. Do you understand what's happening here? The magnitude of this judgment. Let me give it to you a different way. It's 239,000 miles to the moon. This would be a line of people going to the moon and back 80 times. Now, I look at the moon from my back porch sometimes. It's a long ways out there. Can you imagine when you look up at the moon tonight, a, a, a line of people going to the moon and back, 80 trips is how long the line of people would be if the judgment happens relatively soon. If history goes much further, this number is going to get even bigger. Now, some of us were actually taught something different. And I'm sure the pastor was joking, but it put a picture in our mind we can never erase now. Matter of fact, there was a gospel track written by a guy named Jack Trick called This Was Your Life. It's a little comic book track, and it's full of pictures. And there's a picture of a, of a guy who dies, and he goes to heaven and stands before the throne, and a big screen pops up, and they begin to play back his life. Now, many of you in this room have this image in your head from, from sermons when you were a child. And the sermons are something like the pastor's preaching on judgment. And he says, now when you get to heaven, the books are going to be open. And there are the things you've done. Matter of fact, there's probably a big screen. And it's just all, your life is going to play back. And, and we're all going to watch your life play back. I'm just saying to you, no way. It just can't happen. You cannot take this type of language literally and seriously. 100 billion people. If the Lord took one minute to judge every person. Jones, Bill, you're a really bad dude, bye. Okay. If he took one minute for every person, it's 100 billion minutes. Do you want me to flip it to you? Something that's easy. 190, 258,000 years. If the Lord took one minute to address each one of us individually, it would take 190,000 years just to call the names. If you're 120 miles back in line, you see the problem here? You know what a 6A graduation looks like in North Texas. They have to get the students together a week before and start rehearsing that, show everybody where to stand, show everybody how to line up, here's what you're going to do, your phone's going to be this, and you're going to put this here, and you're going to line up here, and who's in front of you, and who's behind you, and okay, here's how you... 
can you imagine turning the world, 100 billion people loose and just saying, okay, everybody line up alphabetically? Well, listen, that'd take 190,000 years just to get people to line up alphabetically. What I'm saying to you is the language you're reading in the apocalyptic literature is figurative. It's meant to be figurative. It's not literal, but it points to a literal truth. The literal truth that it's pointing to is we all believe the Bible is telling us after the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, there is judgment. You have a future judgment waiting for earth. There is a coming judgment. The incorrect pictures that are in our head are how the judgment plays out. We want to be careful not to make the symbol the reality. It's very likely that when that judgment happens, it will play out much differently than we have imagined it would play out. It may be, this is kind of where I'm leaning right now, but I don't want to say it with emphasis, but it may be that when the Lord returns, it all happens simultaneously. That when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ rise. We who are living are translated, transformed. You're not resurrected because you've never, you're not dead, but you're living and you're just changed. You're transformed to be like Christ. Heaven and earth are renewed. They come and join together and the judgment happens. Listen, if God can speak the world into existence, why can't he judge the world with one sentence? Does this make sense, what I'm trying to say to you? You say, well, he's going to reward the believers. Yeah, but why can't he reward the believers with just, I know what you did, here it comes. Boom. There it is. I mean, if heaven, if, if the return of the Lord, if eternity is like Smith, Frederick, Smith, Frederica, Smith. I mean, if we're going to do that for 190,000 years, you're going to feel like you're in hell. That's what I'm saying. Seriously. And I've had several of you come to me and say, hey, as you start talking about the practicality of how this stuff plays out, you know, sitting in heaven on a cloud for eternity, listening to some off-key church member sing, is, does not sound like paradise to me. I've had all kinds of crazy questions come like this, but you're right. Because the Lord has something much better in mind for us with, with something that we're going to be engaged in and something we're going to be doing. All right, so let's talk about renewal and resurrection. Let me shift gears. We believe that when the Lord comes, the Bible is telling a story of renewal. It's telling a story of resurrection. The creation is not a bad creation. It's a good creation. Gosh, you need to get out and travel. It's a beautiful world. And if this is the broken, fallen world, I can't imagine how beautiful the new one's going to be. Seriously, this is a beautiful, wonderful planet, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's filled with beautiful and wonderful people, and if we are broken icons, cracked icons of the living God, and this is a world under the curse, can you imagine what it's going to be? <laughs> it's going to be mind-blowing. You, that's why the Bible writers are saying, it, it, mind cannot conceive, ear hath not heard. It's only by revelation of God that we're beginning to understand what the renewal and resurrection is going to be. The New Testament is not telling a completely different story. The New Testament is taking the Bible, the Old Testament, and building on that story and bringing it up to date. They're reapplying it. And the New Testament writers are talking about God remaking heaven, remaking earth, reuniting them like it was in Eden, affirming the goodness of this creation, but yet admitting it's broken. Listen, you're wonderful, but you're broken. 
This is a wonderful world, but it's broken. It could be so much better, and it's going to be so much better. You're a wonderful person, but I don't have to tell you you're broken. You know you're broken. I'm broken. We're going to be so much better. You know? So listen to what Paul said about this renewal and and resurrection. Romans 8, great passage on this. I, I would recommend it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, something's coming that's going to be much better. Revealing, apocalypse. Something's going to be shown to, something better is coming. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So what he's saying is the earth knows it's broken. He's kind of personifying the earth here. The earth knows it's broken, if you want to make it a person. And the earth in its brokenness is like, oh gosh, I wish I could get well. I'm sick. You know, I hurt. I groan like a woman in trouble. I, I want a better world to be born here. God, come and fix this thing. So that's the kind of language that's being used. 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. So do you see what just happened? Not only is the earth groaning, wanting a change, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of what? The Holy Spirit living in us, grown inwardly as well, as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for a resurrection. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. Now, what's clear is Paul is telling these European Christians, the world's broken and we're broken, but it's going to get resurrected. The world is going to get reborn and you're going to be renewed. Put your faith in Christ. You have the promise of a resurrection, of a transformation because of Christ's resurrection. Now, now watch the language. Revelation 21, going all the way back again. Revelation 21, verse 1. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, If all you had was the book of Revelation, you would think, well, John is writing here about a new heaven, a new earth. He's getting this vision, and he's writing about something we've never heard about. But John is not writing about something we've never heard about. John is quoting the Old Testament right now. This is not new language. This is the language of the prophets from the Old Testament being rewritten into the apocalypse. The New Testament writers, like Paul and like John have got their Old Testament so saturated into their life that when they write, Old Testament just flows out, even as they're telling an updated version of the story of resurrection and renewal, and then they grab Isaiah and throw it right there. And if you don't know Isaiah, then that just happened so quick and you didn't realize, you think John's talking about something new. He is, but he's talking about it from the perspective of Isaiah. Let me read Isaiah 65. See? 
I will create, this is Old Testament now. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will not come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will not be... Have you all read in the book of Revelation? In the New Jerusalem, he'll wipe all tears away from their eyes and there will be no more crying. They're quoting the prophet Isaiah. They're not making it up new. They're quoting Isaiah. Look at the very next chapter in Isaiah. Or the next verse. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Verse 25. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. There will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Metaphor you've heard before. Comes from Isaiah. Talking about the renewed heaven and earth that one day will come. Next chapter of Isaiah. He says it again. As the new heavens and new earth that I will make endure before me, so your name and your descendants will endure. Now, new heaven, new earth language is Old Testament discussion. Being brought into the New Testament so that the New Testament Christians can be brought into the conversation and carry it forward into the church that the story the Bible is telling is not flying away to heaven to live for eternity far, far away in a galaxy way out there in a city where there are mansions. It's telling a very different story. It's telling a story that God is coming to earth to renew heaven and earth and He's going to renew you. You're groaning. You want a new body? You're going to get it. The earth is groaning. It wants a makeover. It's going to get it. It's all going to be remade and, and made better. The corruptibility will be gone. The sin will be gone. It's going to be as it should have been. So now let's recap. We're expecting the Lord's return. We're expecting a resurrection. If you're alive, you're expecting transformation. I don't even know translation is the Enoch word in the Old Testament. You are this, you're going to be made that. God's going to take what you are and make something better for you. You'll still be you. You'll be a better version of you. You'll still be you, but all the problems we deal with will no longer be us. We'll be resurrected like Christ's person. We're expecting whenever that happens that the earth is going to be renewed. That heaven and earth are going to somehow connect and whatever's wrong in this world is going to be made right. And that includes the weather. I don't expect to be nailing plywood over my windows in the new heaven and new earth. Every time I don't expect hurricanes. I don't expect tornadoes. I'm not expecting natural disasters. I'm not expecting tsunamis. I'm not expecting volcanic eruptions. I mean, hot lava doesn't sound like paradise, does it? I mean, tornadoes and hail, it doesn't sound like, sounds like judgment, not heaven on earth. And so it's going to be fixed. Not only is the weather going to be fixed and the earth going to be fixed, the animal kingdom is going to be fixed. That's clear from what Isaiah is talking about. The, lion, uh, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. You know, the one question I've been anticipating for 14, 12 weeks and I haven't got is will my dog be in heaven? Because it's not been uncommon in 30 years of pastoring to get that question. Now, I just want to ask you a question for a minute. Why is it that we would ask such questions? And I'm not being judgmental, I'm being dead serious. The reason you would ask such questions is because you love your animals. Is that fair? How many of you have an animal that you love? Sure. We're Americans. You got some of you, you have ten of them. 
I'll live in the house. Sleep in your bed. It's very strange. <laughs> but it's America. What I'm saying is, in all seriousness, we love horses. We love our dogs and our cats. Uh, we love the animal kingdom. We just love animals in general. We just like driving down the highway and seeing a field full of black Angus. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just nice. There's something about the animal world we love. And I'll tell you what I think it is. Now, it's just conjecture. I don't have a verse for this. God created this world and the animals for you to enjoy. And in the Garden of Eden, there was Adam and Eve, and there they all were. More like pets than a terror, you know. Uh, you weren't scared of a bear and a light. It was just more like, how cool is all this? It's going back to that. So I want to answer, I guess, shortly. No, your dog will not be resurrected living in your mansion in faraway outer space heaven. Instead, you're going to get a resurrection, and so is this world. And you have every reason to expect it will be a world filled with animals. So get you a new one in the new heaven and new earth. Get you ten of them. Move them right in with you. And enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. Listen, it's a sad thing if you've ever had to put a dog to sleep. I mean, you'll cry, trust me. You big, strong men will cry if you have to ever go put your dog down, you know, that you've lived with for 10, 15 years. You say, why? Because we get attached. You say, why? Because God made creation for you to enjoy, but you know it's broken because we have to say goodbye. Listen, when the heaven and earth are renewed, there is no more goodbye like that. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. You just read it. Won't that be a different world? You say, well, will there still be labs? I don't know. Labradoodles and double doodles and triple doodles. I don't know. I don't know. But why not? Why not? I guess is my question. Which brings up the question that I keep getting asked, okay? What about my mansion in heaven? Pastor, if we're not going to live in faraway heaven for eternity... What about those mansions in John 14? Yeah, we need to talk about that. John 14, 1 to 3, yeah. So is Jesus going to build a mansion in heaven for me or not? Well, first of all, let me talk about this. Uh, those of our loved ones that we've buried are, are disembodied. When we buried my dad, his body is over at the military cemetery there, Veterans Cemetery in Grand, uh, Grand Prairie. He's not there. His body is laid to rest there. When he died, he left his body. He is disembodied. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, Heather, when your dad died, he went to be with the Lord, left his body and went to be with the Lord. And he can't be in body form because we buried his body. I was there with you when we did it. We buried his body, but he is with the Lord. He is disembodied right now, waiting for exactly what Paul said in Romans 8, the resurrection. And even John, in writing the apocalypse, said, I saw the souls under the altar. He's talking about people who have died and are somehow in the presence of the Lord, conversing with the Lord. Very conscious, having conversations with the Lord disembodied spirits of saints is the intermediate state, not the final state. We get this confused. And we say things like, you know, my sister went to 
live for eternity in heaven. No, she went to live temporarily as a disembodied person in heaven. She's going to get a very real resurrection and she'll be everything you remember her to be and then more. Heaven help us all, right? Because she was a little ball of fire. Okay? And then, and then more is coming. Okay? In a, in a spunky body like Christ's body, who knows what she'll be capable of. Okay? What, what I'm saying is she's in an intermediate. What other word could I use? Temporary state. Waiting for the resurrection. That's not permanent. That's temporary. So do they go to spend eternity in heaven or what is next for them? So let me define heaven again. I'm going all the way back several weeks now. You need this. So let me go slow. Stay with me. Heaven is God's space. Whatever it is, it's God's space. The earth is your space. So in the sense they're with the Lord, yes, they're in heaven. But being disembodied with the Lord in heaven is a temporary state. Away from, to be away from the earth and to be disembodied is temporary. It is not permanent. They are waiting for the next big thing. The Bible is telling a story of heaven, new heaven, new earth, reuniting, and Christians in renewed bodies. So what is the meaning of the idiom, Father's house? We've been taught in our tradition that it meant to fly away to heaven where we each have our own huge mansion that we're going to move into. But something feels wrong about it. You already know that. I just want you to think for a minute. Chris, you're living in your big mansion over there. Nobody else is in there with you. This is what you've been taught. How many rooms do you have? 72. 72. He has 72 rooms in his mansion. That's what feels right to him. Now I could just go around the room and everybody could tell their own story. Do you know how lonely you're going to be in a 72-room mansion by yourself? You say, but yes, I'll have it all. Doesn't that feel very selfish? Doesn't something feel very prideful about this? Like, finally, I'm going to stick it to the Rockefellers and the Bushes and the... <laughs> doesn't that feel very vindictive and carnal and sinful to you? You just see, it doesn't feel right, does it? Something about the whole thing seems to be off. It's not syncing with the story of the Bible. It seems materialistic and prideful and lonely. And often we've painted pictures that when our teenagers are hearing us talk about heaven, they're like, if that's what it's like, I'm not sure I want to go. It just seems boring and cold and lonely. And, and, and we, we, ha- we have a picture in our minds of Jesus. I'm the one who painted it. I'm sorry. I was taught wrong. We have a picture in our minds of Jesus leading a massive construction project with angelic bricklayers. And he's gone away to heaven to prepare a city for us, and they're building it now. And our loved ones are there pouring cement, crawling through attics, pulling wire, blowing insulation. My dad's up on Allen's roof right now nailing shingles on your mansion. And he's probably ticked because he had to do that as a young man to eat. And he's like, if this is heaven, Alan Smith, you nail your own shingles on. Who I'm up here? <laughs> Andy, Andy, you, you live in attics all your life as an AC man. You want to live in an attic in heaven? Installing AC units for the Wortleys, for the Stacys. I mean, you love these people, but seriously, doesn't sound like heaven, does it? No, we've got a wrong picture in our minds because context makes a difference. The idiom Father's house, that phrase, appears three times in the New Testament. I'm going to show all three to you very quickly. Jesus is 12 years old. 
His parents have gone down for the feast of the Passover. You know the story? They lost him in Walmart. They can't find him. But they didn't know they had lost him until they were a day's journey out of Jerusalem. Then they turned back around to go back. Took another day to get back. And they searched for him for a day. He's missing for several days. And they can't find the 12-year-old Jesus. I'm reading the story. And after three days, they found him in the temple court. sitting. They found him where? In the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers, and his parents saw him. They were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been going crazy. Bobby paraphrase. Verse 49. Jesus responded, Why were you searching for me? Now, if he wasn't Jesus, that's where you wash his mouth out with soap right there. Okay? That's, yeah, that's where you... Son on... He's like, why were you searching for me? Now watch his answer. Didn't you know I had to be in my... Where is he? He's in the temple. You know what he just called it? My father's house. Because temple to the Jews is where heaven and earth connected. Remember the pillar of fire that went up through the tabernacle and up through the temple and then God's presence was there. And when you said temple to a Jew, they said that's where God is. That's the Father's. That's where God lives in the temple. You want to get to, listen, if you could get to the temple, run up to the wall and put your hands on it and pray because God lives right over there. That was their understanding. So Jesus said, well, I had to be in my Father's house. John chapter 2. Jesus went in and tore up the money chain, flipped over the tables and told the people to sold doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my Father's house into a market. He's in the temple. And he's calling it his father's house. Every time it refers to the temple. So let's stay in context. Flash forward to John 14. The only other time this idiom is used in the Bible. It's used again by Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. KJV. And my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare the place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now the question for us this morning is, is is this a future promise or a present promise? Is it a future promise or is it a present promise? Is dwelling with God something we receive in this age or something we receive After we die. That's the problem in this passage. Father's house means what again? Temple. Keep that in mind. So when Jesus is saying father's house. He's using language that the disciples understand as that temple right there. The context of John 14 now is the upper room discourse. This is the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse runs from chapter 13 to chapter 17. The page breaks, the the chapter breaks that you have in your Bible actually hurt you right here. Because you think these are different scenes. Now, cut away. Now, cut away. And now, back to the farm. It's not like that. It's one running conversation from chapter 13 to chapter 17 where Jesus just keeps using different illustrations. That's how they break the chapters. He's using different metaphors to describe what's about to happen. He's eating Passover in the upper room with the twelve. He's going to be arrested in a few hours. 
tried and crucified when the sun comes up. He is a few hours away from dying. And so he calls the disciples together and says, I want to have a long talk with you. And I I want to encourage you and prepare you for what's going to happen. Let me go back to the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse and read you a verse. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Peter's a little upset already by the way Jesus is talking about leaving. Peter said, Lord, where are you going? You seem very somber right now. Where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. Does everybody understand what's happening? Jesus is saying, I'm about to die. And it's going to blow you guys up, and I'm so sorry. The emotions you're going to face tomorrow are going to just blow your mind. And I'm so sorry. You know what this is like because you've had to bury a loved one by now. It's devastating. The world's broken. You were never meant for death. And Jesus says, they're going to kill me. And I'm leaving. And you've got to stay here and do the work that I left you to do. But I can't leave you in an emotionally distraught state that you can't function. You were also not meant to be depressed for your whole life. You've got to get over it and move forward. and It's going to be okay. And so now for chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, I'm going to do nothing but pray with you and talk to you and get you ready with a big pep talk about how to handle what's going to happen tonight and tomorrow morning. Because your encouragement and your success as disciple makers is my primary goal. You talk about selfless. He's about to die and he knows it. And he's not worried one whit for himself. He's only worried about how his disciples are going to be able to handle his death. So he's basically telling them, you, you need not be troubled, you know, by this. Uh, it's only temporary. I'll come back and be with you. I'm going to read John 14 now. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever. Who is this person? The Spirit of truth. Exactly, the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and he will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you. I want you to watch this shift here. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live. He'll be with you and in you. I will be with you. Is anybody confused yet? So is the Holy Spirit coming to live in them? Or is God coming to live in them? Or is Jesus coming to live in them? Exactly. Exactly. You got it. Because you know who Jesus is? Do you know who the Holy Spirit is? He is God. He's God in a different form. Jesus is saying, you've gotten accustomed to me physically being here with you. Physically, I'm Leaving, you're going to bury me tomorrow. Physically, I'm leaving. 
But don't be distraught. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will send the Spirit of God to live in you in spirit form inside each and every one of you. You will not be alone. You, you will not be abandoned. The Spirit is God. Jesus is God. I am going to be with you. So now we're asking the question, when Jesus says we're going to be together, is he talking about far away in heaven in a mansion? Or is he talking about tomorrow or in a few days or in 40 days at Pentecost? I'm going to be with you and in you. When Jesus gives the picture of him going to the Father's house with many rooms, I think the KJV really messed us up here because mansions is really not a correct interpretation of that word, Monet. Monet means a room. In my Father's house are many rooms, and all the modern versions have translated it that way. Imagine the temple sitting on the mountain there. It has many rooms, all kinds of space up there, all kinds ringed with rooms on the outside wall. If you want to conduct business, you could go up there. There was place, there was space. And even further than that, Jesus is saying, I'm going to expand this. Everybody can get to God. Heaven and earth are going to connect. I'm going to be with you. You're not going to be alone. But the word mansion gave us a bad picture in our head. Because we came away reading our old Bibles with the understanding that we each had our own Buckingham Palace. Downton Abbey. We each had this massive estate that God was going to grant to every one of us as payback, as reward for our, for our receiving him as Savior. But it really just means room. In my father's house, there's room for every, there's a room. There's a place to be together. There's a dwelling place. The only other place in the New Testament the word Monet is used is right here in chapter 14, verse 23. It's only used twice in the Bible. I want to read it for you. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them. We will come to them and make our Monet, our room, our home, our dwelling place with them. Now, in light of verse 23, interpret the first part of the passage with this verse. Where I'm going, you will be also. We're going to be together. I'm going to make a place for you. Now, let me read this again. Anyone who loves me obeys my teaching. The Father will love them. We will come to them. God will come to us where? Geographically where? Right here, right now. If anybody obeys, we will come to you and make our home with you right now. Jesus doesn't have to go build a suburb. They're not building subdivisions in heaven right now. For the people who are getting saved this morning, the new temple already exists. You are the new temple. Your body is the dwelling place of God. He said, if you receive me, I'm going to move into you. And we will make our home with you. You say, why did he say he's going away? Because he had to go to the cross and die, be buried Suffer under Pontius Pilate. Remember the whole sentence? Be buried and rise again the third day. In order for this to be possible, he had to go through all of that so that God could come and live in your heart. He never intended for you to be separated again. It was by his death, burial, and ascension that he made your salvation possible, that he opened a gateway for heaven and earth to connect. You said, well, I don't understand heaven and earth connecting. You are heaven and earth connecting. Let me ask you this. Does God live in your heart? 
Listen, wherever God's presence was, the Jews said, that is temple. That is temple. See the pillar of fire? God is there. When I'm looking at your face this morning, I'm seeing living temples of God. Exactly as it was in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The people, Adam and Eve, were living temples of God. Living icons in the presence of God. That's what he's restoring right now. His spirit is living in you. Let me just read Paul real quick. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. And they will be my people. When? In the future or right now? Right now. Now, he lives in us today. And the theme which Jesus started in 13, 14, he carries right into 15. If I just say this much to you, you'll understand. 15 is the vine and branches chapter. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. The branch has to be connected to the vine in order to bear fruit. Abide in me and I in you. And if we're interconnected, I'm living in you, you're living your life in me. There is real life. There is eternal life. There is what I've promised you. And he encourages the disciples, remain in me. So here's what I want to say to you in summary. Jesus' death does not break his commitment that he made to us that he would never leave us. Let me go a step further. Our deaths do not somehow break a commitment that separates us from God. When Jesus died... Bodily, he went to heaven, and in spirit, he sent the spirit to live in our hearts. Does that make sense? Our loved ones who have died, their spirits have gone to be with the Lord. Soul, whatever word you want to use, have gone to be with the Lord. The fellowship is not broken. They are with the Lord, and they will always be with the Lord. The problem is the Lord's coming down here and give them a new body. It won't be in a far away. It'll be in the right here. Listen, if you were to... uh, By Christ's death, he sent his spirit. It is the spirit that connects us, not the bodily presence right now. In the future, it will be more of a bodily presence. You're going to get a new body, and Christ will literally be here on earth. But for right now, we have the spirit. And the point of the whole discourse, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, the whole point of the discourse is Jesus is saying to a group of friends, and he's talking to us like friends, and he's saying, whatever happens next, whatever happens tomorrow, Whatever you face, please stay calm. Please don't lose your faith. Please don't say it was a waste of time. Please don't say God doesn't love me. Please don't say it's all in vain. Please don't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. I haven't abandoned you. I'm going to be with you. It's going to be okay. Whatever happens next, we will be together. We'll be together. Now, it took them a while to get used to the spirits indwelling as the presence of God because they were used to, if you have a question for Jesus, you just say, hey, Jesus, we need. He's right there. And now we have to say it a little more like this. Our, our Father in heaven, now we have to pray and ask for it. That took a little getting used to. But the point is the same. I will never leave you. Now, you're not, uh, our loved ones are not away from us forever. They're only away from us temporarily. With that in mind, we'll give you a quick missions report. And we'll close the service. Annually, 
I ask our, by the way, all of our, all of our disciples around the world are listening right now. They listen to every one of these services and they see you worshiping here. We're going to turn the camera off, guys, because we've got your disciples' names here and we know we can't put them out over the airwaves. So we'll say goodbye to our friends on the other side of the world for a minute. I want to challenge you as we close. Can you just be faithful a little longer? We expect the Lord will return. Could be this week, could be a hundred years from now, I don't know. But I'm going to live this week like it's this week. And I'm going to give like it's this week. And I'm going to witness like it's this week. And we're going to encourage each other like it's this week. And if it's not this week, then we're just going to keep going forward. Remember, the scripture is written so that you won't be discouraged in the work of the Lord. Keep going forward with Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's pray. We'll conclude this service. Thank you for your patience with me this morning. Thank you for opening. Lord, we want to give thanks for our brothers and sisters. Lord, if we stood next to them, we wouldn't look anything alike. Nobody would know we were brothers and sisters. They're very different looking people than we are. But Lord, you have adopted us together as your children, so we stand side by side with them as family. Father, thank you for giving us such a wonderful family. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness that you've showed us. God, hardly any of our people have lost their jobs. Lord, hardly any of our people have suffered to the point that they couldn't work and earn for their families and put food on the table. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the recoveries of those who were sick just this past week. God, we're praying for those who are sick today that you would heal them. God, I'm praying for the spirits and the, the hearts of every person in this room that they would be encouraged this morning. Lord, that we wouldn't get discouraged by politics or terrorism or pestilence or pandemic or financial setback. But God, we would turn our eyes to you and know that it's going to get better. We have a hope. We have a future. Lord, things are going to be set right. And even now, you've not left us alone. You've filled us with your spirit. And you've given us the victory to go forward and proclaim the gospel. God, I pray for every one of us this week, Lord, that you would give us a divine appointment. Lord, a co-worker, a neighbor, a customer, a parent, someone we could share the gospel with. And let our light shine and be an encouragement to God, wrap your arms around us and pull us up close and fill us with encouragement that the victory is ours because of you. Lord, lead us out to live for you this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You guys have a wonderful week.